experts do it's for the listener to hear uh, what someone who is new to the outdoors is doing uh, how their learning process is going and how they got into it and where they're currently at and the idea here is to uh, allow someone who's thinking about getting into hunting fishing trapping boating camping hiking any outdoor pursuit to hear from someone who's already made the jump to hear from someone who's already got started but is still learning and to take those lessons and hopefully inspire those new folks to go ahead and take that last step, which is to actually go ahead and do something in the outdoors. And uh, generally speaking, um, that requires a mentor. So that's where we come in here at the Outdoor Mentor. I'm your host, uh, Colonel Retired Mike Abel. And uh, my guest on the show today is Joel Bryant. Joel and I uh, were introduced uh, a hunting season ago, so a little over a year, uh, by the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources, where Joel participated in one of their Field to Fork events. And uh, since then, we've not only kept in touch, but uh, we've we've done a lot in the outdoors together. And um, today is uh, another podcast about um, how uh, Joel's evolution as a adult onset hunter or a new hunter in their um, uh, 40s uh, is doing and uh, and how you know I'm trying to do my best by Joel as a mentor still to extend the relationship and, and to keep things going uh, without further ado uh, Joel how you doing buddy I'm doing well Mike thanks for having me on today yeah man my pleasure um, yeah it's it's still like I know it's a goal in your life but it is still a big goal in my life to uh, to you know uh, get you to the point where we're hunting buddies instead of mentor mentee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like a great plan. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so if you will, um, for anybody that, that, you know, didn't get a chance to listen to the uh, first podcast that we did, if you, you know, please just, uh, you know, um, in, and as short or as long as you're comfortable, brother, uh, tell people how this journey started for you one more time. Yeah, I appreciate the, you know, again, appreciate the opportunity. I think that, uh, yeah, for me, it kind of began, I don't know, probably three or four years ago with uh, my wife and I kind of having a discussion over dinner about uh, where our food comes from and then uh, just watching shows like The Meat Eater and and different uh, programs just got me interested. And I I think – to be, if I'm honest, all along I've I've always been interested in hunting. Just never really taken the time or had the opportunity to really get out. I had before moving to Kentucky. I lived in Florida and having four kids and a job and and all of the things that go with that. It just didn't really lend for me to spend a lot of time out hunting. And so coming to Kentucky, we've got a vast amount of resources up here, and and uh, it doesn't. You don't have to scroll on social media very long until you see somebody from Kentucky with this huge whitetail or, or a turkey or something else. So I got interested in it and uh, started 
just investigating and just kind of looking at where there might be some opportunities for me to learn. And so I went, as you mentioned, I went to Field the Fork. I went to a couple different uh, Field the Fork classes and and just kind of started out. And, uh, you know, you and I got hooked up. And, and so it's kind of, you know, that's kind of how I got into it. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it uh, there's been other folks that, that have kind of done the one and done mentoring thing uh, before. But you're, you're certainly um, uh, the most uh, persistent and or uh, the most capable of anybody that I've, that I've run into. There's folks that, you know, they try it, and I don't know if they liked it or didn't like it or we had success or we didn't have success, but you are certainly at this point, I would, uh, and I don't give this title lightly. I do not give this title lightly because I think there are people that pretend, but you are certainly a hunter at this point, um, ha- having not uh, accomplished some of your goals, and, and part of that's my failure, but... Uh, um, you're certainly a hunter, and uh, and uh, I am truly looking to get to the point where you and I are planning uh, events together, and uh, the the mentor Ben T things kind of a kind of a distant memory. Uh, you know, you, you've had some interesting opportunities uh, as an adult onset hunter um, that the Department uh, of Fish and Wildlife here in Kentucky helped you with. You know, talk talk a little bit, uh, bring the listeners back up to speed about. Uh, maybe the NWTF event and, and anything else that you've done uh, to help your, your fellow new hunter or your fellow uh, adult onset hunters? Yeah, so after I'd been to the field of fork for turkey hunting here at with the Fish and Wildlife and went on, I actually went on a mentored hunt and, and was a part of that. So the National Wild Turkey Federation, they have their annual event down in Nashville in February every year. And so I was asked if I was interested in going down there and talking to a bunch of R3 coordinators. And so they were R3 coordinators that are either with NWTF or the state wildlife agencies across the U.S. I mean, there was, I don't know, probably 20, 30 people in the room, maybe a little more. Uh, But uh, got to go up there, kind of tell my story. And, and about how I became attracted to being a part of the field sport class and what attracted me to getting into hunting as an adult. And, and just as I explained previously, but it was really neat. It was really neat experience because a lot of the R3 coordinators that I was interacting with and had conversations with during the event. And, and then even after we got off stage, they, they were, a lot of them were lifetime hunters, very dedicated to the sport, and, and we're just trying to figure out a way to to attract adult hunters, men and women, to to the sport. A lot of attention is, is put on youth weekends and, and those types of things, and, and those are very important. But also, you've got to have hunters that are adults getting into the sport that are going to take those kids along and, and take the next steps with those those kids or maybe even teach their own kids or grandkids or whatever. So that, that was a, a neat experience uh, from that standpoint. And then uh, beyond that, um, just, just recently and had the opportunity to uh, participate in a, in a hunt with, uh, with Kentucky field through the department of fish and wildlife. And, and that was a neat experience and, and didn't, didn't uh, achieve the, the end goal, but it was uh, another step in the direction of uh, becoming a, a better hunter and, and learning how 
and what to look for and, and just being a part of that. So that, uh, um, that was a neat experience the two of, you know, so I was the third hunter. There were two other hunters and, uh, both of them actually harvested an animal, harvested a deer. And, uh, but, uh, we saw quite a bit, but nothing that came into bow range. So, uh, those are some of the things that I think, uh, the, the department has done and, and just, just being a part of the, you know, they've got a Facebook group and a lot of support out there for, uh, someone that's looking to get into the sport. Yeah. And, um, it's interesting that you're this, um, you know, there's an old movie called the accidental tourist. You're kind of the, um, accidental face of the adult onset hunter, um, here locally in, well, I should say locally, uh, maybe in the Commonwealth. And for the listeners, uh, you know, R3 is, a uh, you know, recruit, retain and reactivate. So recruit, retain, reactivate R3 is a program that's, you know, it's basically a nationwide initiative to recruit new hunters, retain current hunters, and to reactivate hunters who've left the sport. And uh, one of the things that uh, Fish and Wildlife Departments, Department of Natural Resources, and Parks and Wildlife all over the country have done is they've tried to capture um, the essence of what it takes to to bring in um, youth, diverse groups, whether they be uh, different ethnicities, uh, whether it be different genders, uh, whether it be different age groups. And... um, really you know the the enthusiasm and the um you know just your your drive to become a fully fledged hunter joel has has put you in position to to speak for that community and i think you're a very good choice i'm not blowing sunshine up your butt i really do i think you're a really good choice so so when we last left the podcast um the last time you and I had just met, uh, uh, quick history, we, we met at a, a Taylorsville WMA archery range uh, with a bunch of other mentors and mentees uh, for a hunt. And uh, we had a really exciting morning hunt on some public land and uh, didn't get it done. And uh, then we stayed in touch all through hunting season and into turkey season. We went scouting uh, uh late winter early spring saw some turkeys i took you and uh i learned a new term recently it's called a spot burn if you if you give away a spot it's called a spot it's called a spot burn so i I spot burned one of my actually i spot burned my best public land wma deer deer hunting location because i wanted you to have a spot but i also wanted when we went scouting that day, I wanted to show you how multiple terrain features converge, um, where there's, you know, good food, good water and sign. And we found all that. And I showed you that spot and we dropped a pin on it. And, uh, basically you and I are the only two people that I know, know of that spot. So that's uh, a spot burned it, but it's yours and mine at this point. And then we, then we went and did some Turkey scouting, even saw, even saw a bunch of Jake's that day, had a, had a good time scouting. And, uh, and that was the last we hunted together until recently. But uh, you had a pretty fulfilling turkey season. Um, had some adventures. You want to tell everybody about that? Let's talk about your turkey yeah. season, man. Sure. Well, turkey season kicked off, and my original plan was to kind of wait a couple of days and, and hunt during the week. But as we got to that Saturday, I just couldn't stand it. So I was I was on my spot at, I think, 4.30 in the morning. And I beat every truck into the WMA that I was hunting. And, of course, hunting public land, that's that's a, 
a different challenge in itself and something it's it's a to me it's a skill within a skill that you got to learn is, is how to hunt public land but i was in there early and i uh, got to hear birds waking up and and that was pretty neat i got to hear hear a, a another hunter that uh, just went crazy on his uh, owl call for hours it seemed like and uh, i don't know what he was trying to accomplish but that was kind of interesting to, to hear but uh so I, I, I got to hear birds that morning. So I went back out the next morning and call, uh, you know, started calling about, you know, about day to daylight and uh, got a, got a, a gobbler to, uh, or got a Tom to, to call back. And, and, and so I never, never was able to get him close enough to a shot, but it was, uh, it was pretty neat. And that, that happened probably, I think was, I'm trying to remember how many times I went out, but it happened probably two or three times when I was out where, where I actually had some communication going on. And, and that's a huge step because this is, I mean, <laughs> I'm a guy that has, has, you know, never heard a bird in the wild. So, you know, I've got this, I've got this Tom drumming within, I don't know, he's probably 75, a hundred yards out. Maybe. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's just it's it's just amazing if, so if you when, haven't experienced that. It's, yeah, it's when, crazy. When you get when you get that first gobble response, it is hard to explain the adrenaline rush that goes through a human being when you're hunting a turkey and you try to call to the bird, especially as a novice hunter, and you're not really sure, you know, what you're saying. You just are, are you know, you're trying to speak whatever turkey language it might be. You, you know, you're, you're clucking, you're purring, you're yelping, whatever you're trying to do. And then you get that response and that adrenaline rush. When you get that, that gobble, when turkeys gobble, it, it's, it's a concussion. It's, it's almost like they're screaming back at you. And how would you explain it? What, explain that or explain the feeling for a new hunter on that yeah it, it's like it, it, you know i i kind of compare it to if i'm sitting i, I live trying to catty corner from a from a high school and when the when the band's out there in the fall which they're not out there right now but yeah, because of all this stuff but but when the band's out there in the fall you can hear that drum you know you can hear that drum out there and, yeah. and it's it's almost like a, it's just so unique you know that you can't help but want to sit out on your porch and listen to it right and 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 you know that that to me is kind of like how that how that gobbler is it's like a it's just so unique and, right. and he's just hammering away and uh <laughs> It's just like, man, this is this is unbelievable. I mean, if you haven't ever heard it, it's 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 just crazy. But uh, but that that experience, you know, this I didn't kill a turkey this season. I actually, crazy thing, the, I think it was the the next to the last time. So I hunted several times this this past spring, and I actually had a had a hen walk in front of me, which was kind of crazy. But uh, but that was the closest I, I had to seeing a bird. But just that step forward and having that communication, um, I was, I feel more confident about mm -hmm. it. And, and I, and when I go back out this year, I'm, I'm, it's a, it's a different approach. It's, it's, I've learned and, and I continue to try and, and use all the resources that I have to try and understand what's happening. And then this year when I go out, it'll be different. And, uh, and I feel like I'm taking a step forward each time. And, and that'll, that'll be a theme on some of these other stories that we, we talk about uh, tonight. But, um, you know, I, just taking those step forward and, and learning more. Yeah, and this was your second turkey season this, this spring of 2020. Right. Um, 
and you know it it was I, I'm not gonna lie to you um you asked me a question at the end of uh the last podcast about being a mentor and what do I get out of it and and my yep. and my response was something to the effect of there comes a point in your in your hunting career where you know you're you're looking for the next mountain to climb uh figuratively and 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 in in reality and and for me personally i leave next week to hunt some of the most grizzly infested mountains of montana for bighorn sheep but i also get that feeling of the next mountain when i'm mentoring somebody i, I am so excited for my mentees and you know you're you're my my most um involved and longest running mentee mentor relationship and buddy every time you called me in turkey season i couldn't press i couldn't open my phone fast enough to talk to you i was so excited that you killed a bird and you know you're like hey i almost got one and i did this what does that mean hey i did this what does that mean it was it was really fun for me too you know and so yeah. you, you asked me in the last podcast what's in it for me well that that's what's in it for me when i see you call and we didn't get a chance to hunt turkeys together i mentored two other I, I, interesting enough, I mentored two Vietnam vets uh, this turkey season. One's in his l very late 60s, 69, I think, and the other's in his mid-70s. It was very interesting to mentor those guys through turkey season. And uh, one of them, we actually we hunted nine days before we killed a bird, but I, I called a bird in for him, and, and he just smoked it. And But I didn't get to hunt with you. But I'm telling you, Joel, every time you called, I was I was like, oh, my God, Joel got a bird. I was so excited, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> So, um, yeah, second turkey season, and you, you're taking steps forward. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, the learning continues. Um, in the last podcast, we talked about turkey season and you going out and deciding that turkey would be the first animal you would hunt. And I said, well, you couldn't have picked a harder animal in North America to hunt. Um, you know, and uh, – I'll say this again. I've said it before. If turkeys could smell, uh, you'd have to shoot them at 600 yards with a rifle because their eyesight and their hearing is, is really second to none. And there are birds that can smell, by the way. It's a trivia uh, question for our listeners. But uh, So this year, um, progress has been made. Uh, we deer. We scouted for deer. We scouted for turkeys. You had a much more productive turkey season. Um, rolling into deer season, what were you thinking? Yeah, so once turkey season was done, I, uh, I, I had, uh, it was full on, like, okay, so what does the deer season look like? So we're talking about May of last, of this year, right? So we're, we're in full-fledged, I mean, we're probably at the peak of the, the lockdown, maybe at that time. And so, you know, my, my, I guess fortunately or unfortunately, my kids weren't doing a whole lot at the time because nobody could do anything. And so what better to do then go out to the woods right so my first thing is i think the beginning of july or beginning of june i'm sorry i, I went out to, to do some scouting on public land well i quickly learned that there is a reason why a lot of successful public land deer hunters they do most of their scouting in the winter time because <laughs> i i go out there and i'm in neck deep i mean just i mean i am in these I'm in the bush. I mean, I'm bushwhacking through, you know, look, I can, I found bedding area. I found nice bedding area. I found deer 
you know, deer tracks and a lot of deer sign. But it was exhausting because it's like 85 degrees outside and it's humid and, and you know, you're having to make sure you, you, you cover yourself in bug spray because of the ticks and everything else. And it, it, I tell you, I, I will, my approach will be much different this year. Uh, you, you will see this guy out in the woods with his, uh, with his thermals on because I, I'm, I'm going to be out there in January, February, March. Uh, you know, um, I may take May and, and June off this upcoming year, but, uh, but no, doing, doing scouting and just trying to understand, you know, tree, identifying trees where I might want to uh, put a stand up, you know, just kind of looking for a sign and, and just understand what the, the land's telling me and what the animals are telling me. And, um, you, you know, from, from our discussions, I'm a student, I'm a student. I, I, I am listening to various podcasts. I'm listening to, to successful deer hunters and what they do on public land. And, and so I'm trying and taking the knowledge that you've shared with me on our scouting and so I'm doing that. And then I, I made the decision and you and I, you and I had a discussion about this, but I, I made the decision to, to buy a bow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a vertical bow. And, uh, and so that, you know, I, I, I sometimes, my, my wife would tell you this, I don't do anything halfway. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. And so made the decision, I'm going to buy a bow. And, and I, you and I talked about you know, what does that look like? What, what should I be looking for in a bow? And, and I appreciate the, the guidance because you helped me to, to really hone in on like, how do I select a bow? I mean, your suggestion was, you know, shoot multiple brands and, and shoot, uh, different styles and, and, you know, find one that I, that felt good. Don't worry about what the brand was, find one that felt good. So I ended up buying one and, and uh, and then, you know, you and I uh, worked together to sight that in because that that was half the battle was was sighting in that bow uh, because uh, I was all over the place. I mean, I have a I have a uh, quasi range in my basement right now, and uh, I was I was putting arrows into boards and and all kinds of stuff that was missing <laughs> the target. Yeah. So yeah, and it's funny because the guy at the bow shop told me he said I asked him what arrows you know I should buy, and the guy said just buy the cheap ones, and I'm like well, shouldn't I buy good arrows? He said, no, you're going to break a ton of arrows. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to break a ton of arrows. Well, I've broken a ton of arrows. So Yeah, I, I think one of my one of my favorite bow hunters on the planet is Bo Jackson, the Heisman Trophy winner. Yep. Um, you know, most people don't know that, that Bo Jackson, who, you know, who's a pro bowler in the NFL, he won the Heisman Trophy at Auburn University playing football. He, he He's a multi-sport, just, you know, he's an all-star in the baseball, in the – um, Major League Baseball, but anyway, um, I might get this wrong, but I think Bo Jackson is the person that said happiness is having enough arrows. Um, but it, I want to talk about that vertical bow a little bit, but I want to circle back to scouting. Yep. One of the things that we talked about was is that uh, you, you can actually spend that time um, when you're shed hunting uh, pretty much, you know, early february through early march and you can see the deer trails you can see the old rubs you can see the old scrapes you're looking for dropped antlers you know your tree identification is a little harder because the leaves aren't on the trees but they're on the ground um and you can you can start dropping those waypoints and you and i talked about and and you talked about it on the last podcast and, and you, I was really impressed that you remembered the scouting part that we talked about. But one of the things that I think people overlook 
and I want our listeners, especially the new hunters, to understand is it might take you three years to start to be successful, and I mean to start to be successful on your own because every time you scout, you're dropping a waypoint. Every time you're hunting turkeys and you find deer sign, drop a waypoint. Every time you're hunting deer and see turkeys, drop a waypoint. And what happens, whether you're using Onyx or Hunt Stand or any of the modern hunting mapping applications on your phone, you develop a pattern um, of what you've seen over the years in certain areas, and you can really start to drill down and distill down areas by, look, man, I've got 11 waypoints in a, you know, in a square kilometer here in a thousand square meter area, or, you know, basically three quarter mile square area here. I've got 11 waypoints for turkeys over the last three years. That's where I'm going to be, um, you know, on opening morning. If you're a person like you that, that works full time and you don't have time to be out there scouting the new stuff, over time, all those waypoints that you drop, whether you're, you know, deer hunting, turkey hunting, or, or scouting, or hiking, or whatever you're doing, you know, small game hunting, squirrels, whatever, they, they, they develop a pattern on your phone. And it, it's important that everybody remembers that. Uh, it's every time you find sign and you're in the field, stop, drop a waypoint, make sure you hit save, whatever, and move on. Um, so that's kind of the how scouting for one season um, while you're turkey hunting, you scout for deer, while you're deer hunting, you scout for turkey, vice versa, really plays in. I, I was, um, I was impressed, Joel, but I wasn't shocked that you decided on a vertical bow. I really wasn't. Um, you're the kind of guy that wants to do it the right way, even if it takes you a little bit longer. Um, I, I've mentored other people that went straight to a crossbow because it was just easier to do and easier to learn. And and I don't I don't have any issues with that, none whatsoever. But I, I have to give you a compliment. I was impressed that you decided on a vertical bow, um, and then you called and you're like, "Hey man, can we work together?" And you drove all the way down to my farm. Uh, we scouted my farm, which is a prelude to what we're going to talk about later, um, which didn't take long. It's a small farm, <laughs> but uh, but then we shot your bow. And honestly, you know, you were keeping groups the size of a tennis ball at thirty thirty five yards. So I was saying to myself at the end of the day. That dude's ready to bow hunt, you know. Did you feel like you were ready to bow hunt after we practiced that day? Yeah, yeah. I feel like that I've had a lot more confidence after we sighted that in. Like I said, it was um, – I was. I felt like I was all over the place. There was no consistency to it. And then once we got the sights – and then, and I could I, – I tried to do it on my own and all that. And, and the, the way that you, you showed me how to do it, made a whole lot of sense and that's and that and so now you know i felt like when we got done i could go in and and i could go out to the range and i could shoot at 30 yards and you know nine times out of ten i'm on i'm i'm within a i mean i'm within like you said a tennis ball and so i i found that my shots were more consistent and um and yeah my confidence got better i made it a point to to shoot a minimum of six arrows every day and uh, just to just to keep it up and, and you know one of the things that you and i talked about that i thought was interesting was that you know when you go to hunt typically you're shooting one arrow right mm-hmm. and so wearing yourself out and and there's a time and place i think to shoot a lot of arrows but i think just me picking up the bow in the morning going out going into my basement at 
almost 20 yards and, and shooting six arrows and having those pattern right to me just gets the mechanics down you know and that's kind of what i'm trying to take out of the equation is the mechanics are just there and then it's just a matter of putting a pen the right pen on the animal or whatever yeah there's a there's a world champion archer named randy ulmer um and randy is famous for killing big mule deer but he's also killed big elk and such and um he has been on a bunch of tv hunting programs and um He's, I believe he's from Arizona, but, but Randy is famous for hanging his bow in his garage. And when he goes out of the house for any reason, um, you know, as I remember the lesson that he taught, he'd pull the bow off the wall and shoot just one arrow and then hang it back up and go on about his business. And his philosophy was, you know, you're only going to get that one arrow. So, you know, shooting 17 or 25 arrows in a session is great if you're practicing for a tournament because you're going to have to shoot, you know, 40 targets depending. Um, but, yeah, I love that philosophy that, you know, it's only the first arrow that counts. So you really need to practice that one cold shot. Um, can you Can you take a minute and expand upon, because I think people will find it really interesting, you talked earlier about getting the invite to hunt with Kentucky afield. And for those folks who might not know what that is, the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources here in Kentucky has a very successful um, TV show called Kentucky Afield. And uh, Chad Miles is the current host. And uh, Chad's really easy to watch. He's super personable. He's an amazing fisherman. And uh, and he's a pretty damn good hunter. And, uh, you know, the, the show really does... Uh, our Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife uh, justice because it, it makes everything that, that we do here in Kentucky, hunting, fishing, boating, trapping, and outdoor related, easy to watch and easy to understand and fun. And so can you tell the listeners to this podcast kind of how you got hooked up with that and and uh, how that hunt went? Yeah, so um, I got a call from Chase Winninger. He is the host of the Kentucky Field podcast that they do, and he's also a producer for the show. And so he called, and, and I, I got to know Chase. He and I hunted together. Uh, he had he was a mentor for me on, on a turkey hunt with the department. And so Chase and I, I knew one another, and then Becky uh, Wallen uh, referred me to, to him um, as far as uh, for, for this hunt to see if I was interested. And so the the objective was to, to do the show on uh, newer hunters, and uh, it was right at it was we did the hunt the Monday after crossbow season opened. So bow season had already been open, crossbow season opened that weekend, and so they had uh, two two of the hunters were going to use crossbows, and then I was going to use my vertical bow. And so you're know, obviously asking me if I wanted to do this, and when he told me that we were going to be hunting a piece of private property that uh, has a ton of deer on it um he didn't have to ask twice so uh, <laughs> yeah. that, i i was in and uh, i would have i would have uh, driven to uh, michigan to do that or, or something you know that, that right. would have been yeah that's like that's like a dream uh so and, and it's kind of and i'll just share this and, and i shared this with with chad miles is that it's kind of surreal for for me to have done that just simply because Three years ago, I'm watching this show and I'm going, man, I'd like to get into hunting and to to actually be with those folks and, and hunting, you know, alongside the, those folks 
was was just crazy. I mean, it, yeah. it was just like I can't believe that this is kind of happening. Sure. So yeah, so but you we know, got out. Becky, Sorry. no, I, I just I just have to throw in here. You know, Becky does an amazing job. Everybody that I have ever spoke to, and, and I know Becky, um, everybody ever, that I've ever spoke to in, in the R3 realm in Kentucky speaks very highly of Becky. And nobody that I know, and I mean nobody, has anything bad to say about Chase or Chad. Uh, that's a that's a, just a great group of people. And, you know, if they're looking to highlight new hunters, I'm, you know, they should have called you. I'm glad they did. So, so how did it go? What did you guys do? Yeah. So we got out there and, um, we, you know, kind of got the lay of the land and from the landowner and kind of what, what his objectives were and, and why he, he wanted to do this. And, and there's a great partnership between the Department of Fish and Wildlife and this particular landowner. And so we, we were able, we you know, got our assignments and I was with a, a cameraman that experienced hunter, but you know, he, his job was to be with me in the blind and, and kind of record, you know, what, what went on. And, um, and so it kind of was neat to see the behind the scenes of, a, you know, and he's a guy that, uh, you know, ha- is well experienced as far as has been on many hunts and, and done all this. So we, we got to have some nice conversations about that, but got, got into the blind, uh, about, I don't know, about four o'clock and we, uh, you know, we sat there and, and as, as the, the sun started setting and here, here we are, we're, we're the, we're at the, I guess, maybe third week of September and it's still fairly warm out, but once the here in Kentucky, once the sun starts going down at that time of the year, you know you start getting that cool coolness coming around. And uh, sure enough, as soon as the the sun started going down a little bit, we uh, we had a doe come in, and she she got within she got within probably fifty yards, and she was a nice good sized doe, and uh, and I I could actually hear her walking on the trail, and and so you know I was pretty excited. That was the first time I'd had my heart rate that just went through the roof because I, I thought you know surely she was going to walk down in front of us and she kind of paused and and didn't didn't come our way and we kind of kept I mean she just hung out I don't know what I don't know why she never came down to where we were at but uh, we we continued to wait uh, a couple other does come around uh, they we had one that just kind of ran across the field kind of randomly and then, uh, so we got, got a little closer to, uh, the end of, of shooting lights. So I'm like, yeah, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. And all of a sudden we have this group of, of bachelor bucks come out of the woods and, uh, and it's they're probably a hundred yards off. And, and it, that was amazing. I, I, I'd not, uh, I'd seen, I've seen one other buck alive, uh, when I was scouting one time I bumped one in a bed and I actually got to see him, but, uh, but saw there was five bucks down there and uh, two of them were, were shooters. I mean, they were mature bucks. I mean, they were like the ones that, that you would see these experienced hunters that go after these, these mature bucks. And one was a nine point and the other one was a, was an eight point. And there was uh, three others that were probably four to six point bucks that they were down there just playing around and and just uh, sparring and kind of, just doing their thing down in the corner of the field, you know, right on the field edge. And, and, uh, so that was, that was pretty neat. The, the other two hunters that we were with did, did harvest deers, uh, did harvest deer. And, um, but, uh, didn't get anything, but that was, uh, it was really uh, just a cool experience for me 
just to, to be out there and on this property and, and see these bucks of that size. I've never seen anything like that before. And that's the first time, if I'm not mistaken, that you'd seen uh, deer in front of you, bow in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's the, the first first time. And and, uh, and so, yeah, that was a really, really neat experience. And you know, driving home, I was like, man, this is, this is just really cool to, <laughs> to be able to do that. Yeah. I'm excited for you and, 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 uh, and, and I, gosh, I, I hope they keep calling you because you're a personal guy, you're well-spoken and, and you're going to, you're going to get this done. Um, so you and I talked about, and, and we've been talking about this all summer, um, since the end of turkey season, kind of the last phase of learning, you know, we spend a lot of time scouting. You now know what to look for. You know about converging terrain features, you know about water sources and food sources, uh, for both deer and Turkey. Um, you know, you're by no means, uh, an expert, but you're certainly, you know, a, a, you know, a varsity, uh, athlete, so to speak, when it comes to hunting at this point, when it, when it comes to woodsmanship and knowing what to look for, I feel confident that you can do that. Uh, we spent enough time working together on that stuff. Um, but the one thing um, that I think escapes uh, a lot of these learning programs, and it's just too hard to do. If you get 20 students in a group, you can't put 20 deer on the ground in front of them and say, field dress it yourself. Skin it yourself. Debone that meat yourself put it in meat bags, put it on a pack frame and carry it out yourself. And so one of the things, you know, I talked about last year was, you know, I, since I started back hunting public land three years ago, I've killed three bucks on public land and, and, and a couple of two, two out of three were, were true. You know, I'm very, very, very proud of two out of three. Actually, I love all three, but two out of three, anybody to be proud with, but there were woodsmanship deer. Um, wasn't any, you know, bait or food plots or any of that jazz. And people ask, you know, well, how'd you get it out of there? Well, Western style, you know, I skin it, debone it, put it in meat bags, put it on a pack frame and carry it out. And that's what you and I are working on because the best public land hunts are way too deep, way too far from a parking lot to drag a deer out, uh, which is what most people east of the Mississippi do. And so we talked all summer about the last phase of learning was getting a deer on the ground and, you know, me standing there and, and, you know, us sharing a knife or whatever, but getting through that process so that you're fully confident when you do it yourself, hundred percent DI wide, um, on public ground. So talk about our plan for the hunt we did, um, last weekend. Yeah. So the, the plan was for for me to come out, and I was gonna hunt on a on a spot that we had scouted, and uh, on your property, and so I would come out and, and we would hunt. The idea was to you know I could I could take a buck or doe depending on whatever I, I wanted to do, and then we would break that down in the field, and and just like if we were in the middle of nowhere, and uh, I'd be able to. You know, fully butcher that, go from, and, and that's, that's what, what I'm really interested in is, you know, understanding how to fully process that animal and utilize as much of that animal 
as possible and, uh, and really just uh, to dig into that piece. Because that, that's just something like, it's like when I was a kid, I learned how to clean a fish and, and and I don't know how to clean a fish today. I mean, I can, I can do that with, I can do that with my eyes closed, but you know, to go in and harvest a, a large animal, that's just not something that, that I have experience with. And I, I, I have enough, and, and we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on this later, but I have enough respect for those animals that, that I want to use as much as possible. I don't want to, I don't want to waste that animal. Yeah. And, and here, you know, Let's take this full circle back to the conversation you had with your wife almost three years ago about sustainable harvest and where does your food come from? You know, that's a level of respect that I've I've learned for you and for anybody that decides that that's what they're into the sport for. Um, that's just, you know, you can't find a more altruistic reason uh, to get into this sport. But we're in an environment now, we don't have chronic wasting disease in Kentucky yet, but it's in every state that surrounds us. So, you know, we're into a situation now where our history and our tradition is that you field dress the animal and you drag it out. Well, when you drag it out, you're dragging the entire nervous system, the entire lymph node system, and certainly the brain and spinal cord and all that jazz. And that's where CWD resides as a, you know, as a transmissible spongiform encephalopathy or a TSE, chronic wasting disease is in the nervous system. And so one of the ways that we as hunters um, can really combat this disease is that we can only take, you know, take the meat out of the field and leave everything else there. And if, you know, if you really kill a, a very large specimen that you want to, you know, have a taxidermist shoulder mount, Okay, fine, you know, I, I could teach you how to cape it and cap it. But the bottom line is, for most of the deer we're going to take um, in our lives, they're going to be deer that make us happy, whether it be, you know, a buck or a doe. But that meat, you're, you're going to debone it anyway. Whether you debone it hanging from a tree on a gimbal or from, you know, a winch in their garage or in a shed on a gimbal, you know, learn how to do it in the field at this point. It, it just makes sense with the specter of chronic wasting disease and certainly makes sense in the context of what I'm trying to teach you, which is the best public land spots are way too far to drag an animal out. So um, I uh, have a very small farm uh, by anybody's standards, Uh and it, it used to have about 20 acres of soybeans on it. And we replanted those 20 acres in native warm season grasses and wildflowers. And uh, I'm surrounded by ag and um, whether it be row crops or cattle farm or actually horse farms. And I, and I have a really mature stand of woods and, and that's where you're hunting. And we've had deer in there all year. And we would sit out on the porch, my wife and I, and uh, Aline and I would, would, you know, glass them up all summer. So we knew there were deer up there. And uh, you and I scouted it uh, and looked at the couple stand locations um, when you came out to work with your bow. And so you knew where you were going. And uh, you showed up that morning. And uh, yours truly was sitting in the easy chair looking out the window towards the towards the woods where I really can't see the stand, but I can kind of see the woods and, and I didn't, hear, I didn't hear you pull in. And, uh, 
and I got to the window and looked just to see if you were there, and I and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, Joel's already in the stand. He left the light on in the truck. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> I, I ninjaed up on you and turned <laughs> turned the lights out in your truck, and you're still standing there. <laughs> yeah, I was getting all the gear on. I, uh, you know, I've, I was trying to avoid, uh, you know, wearing all my clothes down in the truck. You know, I was trying to, I, I'm trying to be uh, conscious of my scent and all that and 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 so i was getting getting all my gear on and i just happened to see somebody in my truck i'm like what the heck and then i'm like oh that's my and I, I, my first thought was like <laughs> I, I must have woke him up or something you know yeah. i thought i'd slid in their self mode but <laughs> yeah it was pretty funny because i hadn't seen you since uh i guess early july when uh yeah. when you came down to you know work with your bow and then i took you out and showed you all the stand locations on my farm and uh I was just waiting on seeing you walk down because I can see somebody walking down the ridge out through my through my native, you know, warm season grasses and wildflowers, whatever. I could see him start to walk out there, so I was excited to watch. You know, I'm excited for you, man. It's yeah. like the question you asked me at the end of the last podcast: What do I get? What do I get out of it? It's it's like Christmas for me, man. If you're a mentor out there, man, and you don't get as excited as you did when you killed your first couple deer to see your mentees kill their first deer. There's something mentally wrong with you, and I'm not going to apologize for that. I am excited. So I got up early, and I'm sitting in my easy chair looking out the window, and, and something just told me, hey, man, you know, go check the driveway. And I look out the other side of the house, and there's your car, and the lights are on. And it made me giggle all the shit because I went out there, and I'm like, oh, he left the lights on. And I reach in your truck to turn the lights off, and you're standing right there. So I got to say hi, and I got to see you, which was cool, man, because I, I, I enjoy your company. So, um Tell everybody how the hunt went that morning. Yeah, so I got out in the stand, and uh, we had a uh, had a south wind coming out of the woods, blowing up into the field, and uh, it was it was kind of it was really it was probably less than five mile an hour, so we didn't have a whole lot of wind when I first got in the stand. It was pretty quiet, and the, the wind eventually picked up, and it was a pretty heavy wind coming out of the south. And I sat. My goal was to sit in the stand till about. So I got in there about seven, you know, roughly seven fifteen, seven thirty, whatever, and just sit in the stand till about one thirty. And um you know, it was quiet all morning, really didn't see any any action other than the squirrels were going crazy. I, it's just amazing. If I was squirrel hunting, I probably wouldn't have saw a squirrel all morning. But I, I had I actually had one crawl up the back of the, the, the stand. I mean it was it was kinda crazy. And, uh, but the morning was, uh, was pretty quiet and then, uh, you know, kind of headed up and, and took a little break from the stand about one thirty that, that afternoon. Yeah. Um, uh, we were in text communication, although it's not, there's not a whole lot of signal down there. And I uh, said, Hey, I'm coming in for lunch. And we sat on the back porch and looked out towards the, the, uh, horse farm and talked about the evening hunt and had a little something to eat and, uh, and you went back out for the evening hunt, and man, I'm telling you, I I was trying so hard not to, like, you know, I'm I'm pacing like an expectant father on the front porch, trying not to go in and out the the, the screen doors and make noise because you know the stand's only three four hundred yards away, and I'm just I'm just waiting. And uh, how'd the evening hunt go? Yeah, so I was. Uh, it's funny because I, you know. You, when I was at lunch, I, I was looking at my phone and, and I was looking at the, the weather app and I, I was looking at the, you know, there was a front 
that was going to push through later that afternoon. So I'm looking at it and I'm going, well, we've got obviously the front's going to come through sometime around dinner time, you know, five, six o'clock, whatever. And the pressure is going to go up. And, and so there, there could be, you know, maybe there's something with that, right? Um, just, you know, again, just thinking about it, you know, trying to, you know, just, so I went out and, and you know, got back out in the stand about three 30, sat out there all quiet. And, uh, all of a sudden the, the wind just, just stops and, and it turns and it starts coming in from the North. We get a north northwest wind, I think, coming in. It's blowing in my face now, blowing back into the woods, and and so there's a, um, and and you can probably correct me on the term, but there's a, uh, for lack of, it's like a trail coming from the left. Um, so that would be from the, it would be southeast, I guess. Um, so that's where I'm expecting, and that's what you share with me at lunch. You would expect that animal to come in that way. So I'm, I'm looking that direction i'm, I'm kind of just watching watching and i uh, so i look look at my watch and it's i don't know 555 and it's probably the coldest it's been and the wind is strong in my face so it's coming hard out of the north and i'm like man you know and i and i kind of i kind of look you know i kind of lean over because you're in the stand all day and I, i'll tell you this um i i've fitness um you cannot be it is hard to sit in a stand all day if you're out of shape. I don't care. I mean, I know you're sitting, but to sit in a stand and be still all day long, it takes some endurance, you know, and that's one of the things I've been trying to train myself, either just, uh, you know, physically, you know, and kind of in the off season. Right. So I'm sitting in the stand and I, and I lean over and I'm, I'm kind of just kind of stretching a little bit, you know, and I'm kind of being, I'm, I'm moving very slightly and I happen to just look over and there is a deer, there is a deer that is within, I don't know, 17 yards, maybe I'm thinking. Um, and I am just like, oh my gosh, there's a deer. Yeah, so you have a feeding deer yes. in, in your wheelhouse. Yep. I mean, he, he was stealth. I mean, I never heard him. And again, I'm getting yeah. a bunch of wind in my face. So, sure. it, it, you know, it's, it's catching my big ears. Mm. And so I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm getting it in my face. And so I, it's hard for me to hear, you know, if he had been coming with any kind of force, I would have heard him. But man, he, he slid in there as, as quiet as can be. Yeah. And, you know, that for, for a new hunter, the wonderful thing about the wind is, you know, if you're on the ground and you're walking, you absolutely positively want it in your face. If you are hunting a food plot or a trail or a couple of, you know, in an oak flat, you want the wind blowing um, towards you, not at the food source, not from you towards the food source, not carrying your scent towards the food source. You know, years ago I hunted during a... Um, during a drought year and I hunted deep pools in a Creek and they were just as, just as effective as hunting a, a feeder or an Oak flat or whatever. But you always want that wind blowing from that water, that food source, that feeder, whatever it is from that at you, because the animal is gonna, you know, go to that. And, and the chances are they're not going to come in your downwind cone enough but the thing about that wind, when it's when it's blowing like that, is it hides your the sound of your movement, but it also hides the sound of their movement. And so I, I had an old mentor of mine tell me that 
the most exciting thing is when you're sitting in a stand and then a buck magically appears like it grew right up out of the ground. And, uh, and that sounds like what happened to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing. And I I think as a new hunter, one of the hardest things to kind of understand and learn is the wind and how you, how you manage that. Because I I feel like, and, and I'm not, slighting on anybody that has sponsorship but if you listen to a lot of experienced hunters they're going to talk about different products and they're going to talk about suits and this and that and if you're just a regular guy like me i mean i'm not going out there and spending 300 dollars on a scent proof suit i mean i'm just going to wear my camo and and kind of go with it you know just be as scent free as possible but but understanding how that wind can work against you or for you is, is to me a huge deal for a, for a new hunter and trying to learn that. Man, I'm so glad you brought that up. I didn't plan on talking about this, but I'm mentoring a brand new big game hunter that is a big new Western big game hunter. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of people that, that live in the Mountain West um, that understand how to hunt big game in the Mountain West. But there's a significant number of us that live east of the Mississippi that drive out there to hunt. And, you know, I've been doing it for, gosh, uh, 12, 13, 14 years, whatever. And, you know, lessons learned are lessons learned. And, and I have a, uh, I'm not going to tell you his last name. His name's Chris. I'm mentoring a guy named Chris who, who called me and he, he's struggling. He's going on a Wyoming elk hunt and he's struggling to learn the terrain and, and how to, where to be in the morning when the sun comes up and where to be in the evening, et cetera, et cetera. And I explained to him, you know, the morning and evening thermals and to use the wind and sunrise and sunset to influence, you know, where his wind cone or where the, where his scent cone is going to be based on the thermals and to also be where the sun is in the animal's eyes, not his eyes. And, and it is something that it's almost like an experienced quarterback on a football team knows how hard to throw a football to lead a receiver or knows exactly where to throw it to that only the receiver can catch it. You can't explain to someone how to throw a ball like that. They just have to throw a thousand footballs. And that's kind of where you're at with learning the wind. Once you, once you learn it, it becomes such, it becomes second nature to a way in, in a way that's unexplainable. But one of the lessons I, th- I think you learned and we talked about on this hunt was if the wind's blowing hard enough, it's hiding your movement, but it's also hiding their movement. Right. Yeah. So you got a buck deer in front of you, bow in hand. Talk, talk, yeah. talk to, talk to the, talk to the aspiring hunters and tell them, you know, how you felt, what you're thinking, all that jazz. Yeah, so I mean, immediately it was like, oh my gosh, you know, and uh, and then I, I did I did remember the the slowest, smooth, smoothest, fast. And, uh, and thank so, you for saying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, it was almost like I was saying that in my head, you know, trying not to just get totally, you know, not trying not to fall out of the tree stand, you know, or anything. And so I, um, I, you know, I, I saw that, and I, so I. I reached up and, and my bow was hanging and from the hand on the hanger. So I, I reached up and I, I grabbed the bow, got the bow in my hand, you know, just continued to watch him. And, and it was funny because I felt like he sensed something wasn't right. And so he, 
you know, he would raise his head up and he'd look around and then I would just stop. And then he would put his head back down and he'd continue to eat. And then I stood up on the stand. He raised his head up, looked back down. And then I, I, I put the seat up. And so I could position myself where my, my feet were square. And um, it was still kind of the angle and, and understand that I have not shot a bow from that angle. Okay. And, and that's something, and maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but, but keep in mind, most of my practices are straight on target in front of me. Okay. So I'm up on the stand and I'm, I've got an angle that's, that's kind of wonky. And, and I'm also trying to, I'm trying to position myself, trying to stay calm. And so I draw back and my first, my, when I first looked at him and I was, I had my boat full draw. It was, it was weird. I didn't feel comfortable. So I let it back down and I waited. I took a couple breaths and then I repositioned myself on the stand. And again, he's still doing his thing. He's still every now and again, he's raising up, he's checking it out and he put his head back down. So I drew back a second time and then I, I placed the, the pin um, at where I wanted it. I, I made sure that I was leaning at my waist and I drew back and, you know, basically hit the release. And when I hit the release, the way the sun was in the sky, there was a shadow on his broadside. And so I could not tell where that arrow went once I released it. I mean, it was hard for me to, and then the first thought in my head was, man, I don't know if that hit at the right spot. And he jumped. So as soon, as soon as the, I hit the release, he moved. Now, was that a result of the arrow or was it a result of a sound? I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. It happened all so quick. He jumped, uh, went went immediate, to his immediate right, and then cut back uh, to hard, you know, hard into the woods. And um, you know, I, I'm I'm in this like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't know, I don't know where that arrow went. That was the that was the thought that came to my mind. And and, and right or wrong. You know, I didn't have anybody there to say, oh, yeah, yeah, hit right here. You know, it was just I tried not to look exactly. You know, I tried not to pull the bow away to look where the arrow was going to go. But I couldn't tell you where it went. And, and that's kind of when you know I text you and, and we kind of you know, started that process. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a couple things to unpack here. First, the excitement of it. Um, you know. We're talking about basically what a two a two year journey has come to uh, you know one Mississippi two Mississippi count to twelve Mississippi and you you've got to put two years of trying and two years of practice and two years of learning into twelve or fifteen seconds and and here's where I owe you an apology um, you know I'm a mentor and you know, we're both grown men. We're both 
between 45 and 50 years old and, and, and I don't feel appropriate to insist on anything. But when you came to practice that day in July, I have targets off the back porch that are vertical. My back porch is a second story porch and I have full size deer targets that are down the hill. And I even asked you at lunch that day, Hey, you want to take a down the hill practice shot? And I didn't insist on it. And if you're, and if you're a mentor out there, you know, you, you mentioned it just now, you, you, you bent at the, at the waist. I talked to you about that, which is go to full draw, get your normal anchor point and relax as if shooting horizontally and then bend at the waist. Don't just drop your arm and fail to raise your, your uh, draw hand elbow. Bend at the waist. We talked about that, and you just talked, and you just mentioned that. But what we didn't do is we didn't practice those shots from a stand-type angle, and that's my fault. The other thing that I didn't, and I don't remember if I said this to you, but I feel like it's my fault, and, and I've said this to my buddies that I take hunting, elk out west because when we first start hunting them when the season opens in labor day they're not rutting and we hunt them over water because it's hotter than snot and um and i always tell them like look man animals especially ungulates you know uh deer elk caribou moose ungulates that that the whole family of animals that come into water they've been coming into water for 20,000 years and when they come into a into a water hole that's where they're most likely to be ambushed by you know a mountain lion a bear um so you gotta wait you gotta you gotta slow yourself down to the point where you can you know i, I mean my second elk out west i stood up grabbed my bow when he was still 200 yards away from the water hole i could see him and i stood there until my arm got tired i'm like you're an idiot hang your bow back up and sit down. And I, I had to force myself to sit and, and I let him drink for no kidding, a full two minutes. Now that doesn't sound like long, but sit there and count 120 seconds and think about that. I feel like that's my fault for telling you, look, man, if a deer's on an Oak flat eating acorns, he's at a mineral lick, he's at a feeder, Wait until they look like they've absolutely calmed down and they're just don't have a care in the world. So I feel like I feel like I owe you an apology on two fronts. One, we should have practiced that angle shot. Two, we should have had a long conversation the same way we did last year's deer season about shot placement. We should have had a long conversation about when a feeding animal comes in you have to be disciplined and relax and wait until they look comfortable because that's when they're not going to string jump you and talk about the shot talk about after the shot and and we'll go from there yeah so you know shot shot went off deer deer took off and i can from the stand i can see the arrow so I knew the arrow was on the ground. So I knew I knew it hit hit the animal, um, some way, shape, or form. So I knew I saw the arrows on the ground, and so I forced myself to sit in the stand for about I don't know ten minutes or so, and then I just couldn't stand it anymore. I, I had to get down. I just I was driving me crazy, you know. I just needed to know know where this deer was, and um, and so I 
you know, I, climbed, I got all my stuff together, you know, climbed down out of the stand, walked over and, uh, and to the arrow. And, um, and so it was, it was on the ground. Uh, one, one thing I do do want to do want to say, and maybe this is jumping ahead a little bit, but to your point on the, the, the shot, you know, with regard to practicing an angle, that kind of stuff, I, 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 you know, obviously I, I got to take ownership in that as well. Because for me, you know, I, and I, I told my wife this the next day, I, I told her that, you know, here, here's my go forward is that, okay, the straight on shots are fine. I'll, I'll continue to do those and, and continue to practice that way. But I have to put myself in situations that are more difficult. I have to be able to make a shot at an angle. I have to be able to make a shot. And she's like, yeah, just take, you know, her, her infinite wisdom was, hey, yeah, take that stand out of the tree and and put it up there and shoot out of the stand. I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's probably what I should have done. But anyway, you know, just, I, I, I should have thought through that a little bit more and, you know, but, ahead but, of time. <laughs> but, you know, here's the wonderful thing about this podcast and your journey. How many people, God, I hope as many people as, as we can get this out to hear this lesson. Um, cause it, it is, something that you just can't fake. You, you, you can't fake shooting. You know, that stands, that stand, because it's on a hillside, that stand is a little higher than normal for the simple reason that if a deer comes in over the top of the hill, you don't want them looking you right in the eye sockets. Right. You know, and a lot of people would put a stand 15 feet. Well, that, that stand is perfectly positioned in an oak flat, um, I installed a mineral lick there, um, but if if it was any if it was six feet lower and and an animal came at the base of those oak trees that are that are thirty yards to the north, they'd be looking right at you, and I mean horizontally. So it's pretty high, and yeah. that's a and that's a good thing for your wind. That's a good thing for your scent. It's a good thing to hide your movement, but it makes shot angles tough. Right. And and that's where I'm going to take ownership of this is we should have practiced that um, to the point where in July I, I could have took a block target out there and set it. And, you know, I mean, this would have been kind of labor intensive, but we could have gone to the level of, you know, detail where I took a block target out there to that stand or the stand down in the bottoms that I showed you and put it at you know, 20 and 30 and put it in two or three different locations and let you shoot at it so that you mentally knew. But even so off my back porch at, I have a 23 yard full size Reinhardt deer target. Not one of the ones you buy at Cabela's. I shoot tournament archery. It's one of the ones you shoot in ASA or IBO. It's a full size deer. Dude, I am sorry, man. I should have insisted that we shot those angles. Um, and that's my bad. Yeah. No, 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 that's not. So we're we're giving it we're giving it away that we didn't get the deer because I'm a farmer. Right, right. We we the the plot the the uh, the surprise is over now. So, but no, um, yeah. I mean, so got out of the stand. Um, got got myself got myself together. You know, went and looked at the arrow. There is uh, there's blood on the arrow. Um, and so made you know and, and again this is all coaching right so 
you know, of course, my, my first inkling is pick up the arrow, go put it over there by the rest of my stuff. But, you know, you, you coached me on that later. It's like, hey, just leave the arrow because the arrow is going to tell the story. And, and that makes sense now. And uh, we did we did find just a little bit of, of blood. Um, you know, I, I was already kind of looking when, when you came down. And, uh, and so we, we scoured the, the countryside. Um, you know, looking for a, any sign of, uh, of this, of this deer, you know, what happened to it. And once, once we, we kind of got into that process, um, you know, I'll, I'll just admit, I mean, my head goes to a bad place, you know, really at this point in this, in this journey, um, you know, kind of like, what have you done, you know, kind of thing. And, um, and it was kind of funny because I had watched, um, the, the the latest the latest season of, of Meat Eater and uh, and Steve Ranella was in Colorado he, he shot an elk with a muzzleloader and uh, didn't recover it and and and, it, and you never see that on a video that's the first time I've ever seen it on any type of of show hunting show where a guy says you know what I did everything I could to find this animal. And I just didn't find it. I, I just, my shot placement must've been off. I thought I had it, you know, and, and it happens, you know, and it, and it's one of those things that I never want to have happen to me. I, and I will do everything in my power to make sure that it doesn't happen. Um, but, you know, I, I, I almost feel like that, you know, just knowing that, um, that does happen and it, and it, and it did happen. I, I mean, I, you know, we can talk about the conclusion of what, what our, um, what our, uh, investigation showed, but, but, you know, that night, you know, in my head, I was, I was not in a good place after, you know, we had been out, I mean, I'm in the thickets and briars and everything else, just scouring for this deer, you know, and not knowing whether it was alive, dead or what it was, it was, you know, just mentally for me. And, and the other thing I think that played into this is that being, being in the stand all day and, and just you feel like you've put in all this effort and, and and like I said like you said earlier was it was two years of trying to learn this and do this kind of came to this moment and it's almost like I feel like I blew it you know and and that that was kind of where I was at at the moment you know I'm, I'm in a different place now with with it but I, I think at the moment I was like man this is bad <laughs> so yeah, man. Um, you know, that's it's so funny because this, my goal with this podcast is for people like you to, to tell their story and, and you're, God, I love you, man, because you're good at telling it. It was a classic case of you cut them, but you didn't mortally wound them. And the blood trail didn't, the blood trail was gone at 30 yards. And, you know, my lovely wife is the best blood trailer I know. She's the kind of woman that will walk down the beach with her head looking at, looking at the ground for shark's teeth or shells for three hours. I mean, she just, Aline, if you're listening to this baby, you, I've told you this a hundred times. You're the best blood trail I know because she just enjoys walking, looking at the ground. Um, and after you and I scoured the earth for 
you know, I guess the first hour looking for any more blood. Uh, you know, we got to the point where the last drop was the size of a pinky nail, uh, your pinky fair nail. And I just, I called my wife. I'm like, hey, baby, we need you. And uh, she got her boots on and came out and started looking with you. And so she's better than me. And I'm not going to say she's not. I'm not one of these hunters and, and accomplished hunters, whatever you want to call me, that, that's going to brag when I'm not the best. My wife is the best blood trailer I know. And so, and, and a very skilled hunter, that woman. Um, so once she was helping you, I'm like, look, man, I'm going to go to the edge of the property. And I walked the edge of the property in the dark with my headlamp and a flashlight, slow and methodical. And I did not find a blood trail where that deer left my farm. So I'm like, look, man, when I finally got back to you guys, I'm like, look, I didn't find him. But he didn't either. He's not bleeding enough. That there's, you know, and sometimes those blood trails end because they took off running. And people think, well, the blood trail ended. Well, guess what, man? I don't care how hard they're bleeding. If a deer takes off at full speed, you know, unless it's spraying out of their chest, which means they're going to be dead inside 100 yards no matter what. If they're just bleeding, if they're running at full speed, and, I don't, and I've, I've killed, you know, mountain lions, grizzly bears, black bears, you know, elk, you, you name it, Cape Buffalo. If it's just bleeding and they take off running, your blood trail is going to be a drop every 10 yards, every 30, 40 feet. And that's hard to do at night. So we had a little discussion. We decided to call it a night. And we decided to call it a night. Two years of trying came crashing down around you, brother. And um, I, I think you owe it to the listeners and to other you know, new hunters to talk about um, when I called off the search. And, and we decided to head back. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt I felt bad just because, you know, not knowing, you know, what had happened to the animal. And, and, and the, the range of emotions was that in, in this sport, when you pursue something, um, you develop an affection for it in a way. And it's kind of a weird deal. You know, it's like an animal that you're trying to, to put – in the freezer or put on the table, you develop a, an affection and a respect for how, how they are. And, and just that, that alone was tough um, from my standpoint at that moment. I mean, just, just having to face the fact that, you know, I could have wounded this animal or, or not, not fully. I, I felt it was almost like I, and then, and then to have the, the situation where, you know, you had allowed me to come hunt and, and I basically could, you know, again, could, could have wounded or, or, you know, killed an animal that we couldn't recover in, on your property and all that. There was just a range of emotions kind of, and I, again, like I said, having sat all day, had I not been there all day long or had I only been in the stand two hours, I, I don't know that, you know, I'm tired. I'm, you know, there, <laughs> I had hadn't eaten a whole lot of food all day you know i mean there's a lot of things that um you know played into you know just a you know that emotional time I mean, I, it was very emotional for me to to just kind of having to give up at that time not not being able to, to continue to to look and i thought i knew i knew intellectually that it made sense not to continue the the search i mean 
nothing good's going to come out. You know, there, there's some pretty rugged terrain back there and, 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 you know, all kinds of stuff. So, um, so yeah, we called it off, walked back and, and, uh, both you and, and, and your wife were very comforting, you know, for, for me. Cause I, I, I was just, I was kind of, I was really in a bad place. I mean, I just didn't, yeah, I feel very good about it. And, uh, and so needless to say, it was, it was a long ride home and, uh, you know, had, had a chance. You know, I tried not to reflect the whole time, you know, I tried to, um, but you know, when I got home, you know, obviously talking to, talking to my wife, that was, that was a interesting conversation. And, and just to have that discussion, because that was, I knew that was big on her mind. You know, she's an animal lover. I mean, I mean, an animal lover that is a car, you know, that, that eats meat. Okay. So don't, right. not a, yeah. not one of those, but, uh, um, but you know, just, that was one of the things we've talked about all along is that, you know, I got to make sure that I'm on point with whether I'm, I'm hunting an animal with a shotgun, a rifle or a bow and arrow or a crossbow, whatever it is that I need to be, um, I need to be the marksman that I can, I can make an ethical shot. And that, that's very important to me. And it still is. I mean, that, that, you know, that drives me to this morning. I was shooting my bow this morning, you know, because I'm trying to, to hone that skill so that, because that I'll never forget that experience. I, I don't know that I'll ever forget that. And I don't think you should, um, you know, uh, it was after my last deployment uh, my wife would not let me out of her sight. I came home with all my pieces, parts, you know, um, no bullet holes, nothing blown off. And um, three days after I came home, I went turkey hunting, and she wouldn't let me out of her sight. And she said, oh, my God, I'm, I, I'm going with you. My wife wasn't a hunter back then. And um, we spent a day afield, and, sh- and she fell in love with it. And um, my wife is also an animal lover. Uh, best blood tracker I know and a hell of a shot, but you know, I, it's a rare occurrence that my bride doesn't shoot something twice. And I mean, even with a bow, um, she was hunting by herself in Colorado. Uh, I dropped her off at a high mountain water hole, about 8,500 feet elevation, um, that we knew elk were coming in and, um, and she shot a six by six with her bow and, and it was a clean kill. And, uh, and he, and he fell, you know, and she saw him fall and she shot him again. And, uh, she shot a doe this year and shot him again. And, you know, she doesn't want an animal to suffer. And, and I am a hundred percent, uh, in that same mental place that you are. And, to say that I could, you know, recognize where you were at mentally and, and empathize, um, with your plight is, you know, it, it, it goes without saying, man, I've been bow hunting since I was 14 years old. We started with, you know, fiberglass recurve Martins back in the day. And, and, you know, I hate to say this, but it happens, man, you wound animals and it's tough. It's really tough. Um, you know, your, your visible emotion um, was something that I would expect a man of your caliber and character to show. Um, but 
you know, in speaking with my wife, who once again now has been hunting for over a decade and is as experienced as I am, we had a little conference there and we said, look, there's, you know, bright red blood, so it's definitely not a gut shot or a liver shot, but it could just be that he cut the deer. Uh, it doesn't mean that it went through, you know, double lung. And since you were so excited and couldn't tell us, you know, what the hit looked like, and, and because I hadn't told you, again, my failure as a mentor, leave the arrow set uh, in the ground after the shot. A lot of, lot, of, lot of not perfect failure type blame to go around here, including on me. Uh, Aline and I decided, hey, we need to call this off. So um, I know you had a long ride home. I had a long night sleeping. Uh, my wife had to work the next day, so she drove um, back to town because we have a little apartment here in town where she works, and we don't always stay on the farm. And I stayed at the farm. <laughs> I was up an hour before daylight, Joel. And, man, I'm drinking coffee, and I'm like, sunlight, come on, sunlight, come on, sunlight, come on. As soon as it crested the hill, I was out there looking for your deer, man. And I stomped my property and the horse farm to the north and found nothing. And uh, I would sign a sworn affidavit, and I would almost guarantee that um, that that, bunk that buck string jumped you. Now, for those who don't know what that means, deer are wired, uh, as most prey animals are, they are wired tight when they come into a water hole or to a mineral lick or to a place where they're feeding, whether it be an oak flat or a feeder, they're wired tight. And the sound of a bow going off will cause them to drop and gather themselves or to just from a standing position kind of jump and it will alter um, the impact of an arrow um, dramatically and as a new bow hunter and as someone who's gaining strength in drawing a bow um, you know you're shooting um, a, a bow and arrow setup that is certainly deadly I mean it's no no doubt what you're shooting could could kill an elk no doubt because it's as it's as deadly as what my wife's shooting she's killed elk and and it's it's actually faster and stronger than that but it's not super fast it's not as fast as a bullet it's not as fast as what's coming out of crossbow so I, I truly believe that that your buck um is walking the earth still today with a with a nice cut and he's, you know, as they say, chicks dig scars. He's showing all the does. He's like, look, man, I, I, this, this hunter tried to kill me. Look at this cool scar I got. Um, but we're going to get you a deer, man. We're going to get you a deer. And uh, chalk this up to experience once again, brother. Yeah. You know, I want to say one more thing. And, and, you know, hindsight, you know, gosh, you know, two weeks out or whatever it is now. And, and um, you know, thinking back on it, you know, Okay, so if I if I look at the big picture, and the last so I've been out this season, let's call it I don't know. I, well, I, I went out scouting the weekend before the opener, and I bumped a buck. Okay, so I saw a buck, and then I saw you know I went out with with the Kentucky field guys and saw bucks, and then saw buck. So. So here, there's there's a pattern developing here, okay, and, and that that's the perspective <laughs> that, that that I have to have is that you know I'm I'm actually seeing animals, okay. That's a good thing, right? Um, that that's that's something that's good that says that you know I, I got to be doing something right, right? Oh, I, absolutely. Just, yeah. 
you know, so, so in perspective, you know, three years ago, I wasn't seeing any animals. So, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, all is not lost. Um, you know, I, I had, I told, I told my wife, I said, like anything else, like any other real big event in my life, I have to let it simmer for about two days and kind of then start really analyzing it and, and just get all the emotion out of it and just analyze the facts. And, and so, you know, that's kind of where I'm at now is that, you know, got to be a better shot. Uh, I got to be able to make those difficult shots and, um, and yeah, moving on. Well, your perspective is, uh, I, I would say it's refreshing, but it's not, you, you've got the perspective of, of a mature hunter. And, and I mean that as a compliment, um, you know, you're talking about your wife being an animal lover and you're talking about you being an animal lover in the juxtaposition or the catch 22 or the weird way that we think about animals. And, you know, there's a writer whose name's Tom McGuane and, um, and I'm going to screw this up, but I think the, I think the article Tom McGuane wrote is called the heart of the matter or the heart of the game, something like that. But anyway, if you Google it, Tom McGuane, the heart of something or other, Tom McGuane was being challenged by a non-hunter and he said, look, why do you got to kill a deer? And the conversation went on and the non-hunter said, you know, well, would you die for the deer? And, and Tom said, well, if it came to that, I would. And so as hunters, it's hard to explain this counterintuitive narrative where the individual deer that one deer, it matters. It certainly matters. Um, but we're going to kill it and eat it. Uh, you know, Homo sapien, uh, hell, you know, Homo erectus and, and, and our, our, you know, whether you believe in creation or not, I'm, I don't mean to, to get into that realm here, but our forefathers have been killing and eating game for tens of thousands of years. So, the individual animal doesn't matter, but the animal at large is something that you fall in love with. So it's easy to fall in love with white-tailed deer. We have pictures of them everywhere. People have them on the uh, on their trucks. People and in Kentucky, you can get them on a license plate. I mean, people love white-tailed deer, but the individual deer is something that we would kill and eat. And that's what Tom McGuane's point was: is like. If it came to it, I would die for the deer, but I'm not going to die for a deer. And that's a hard counterintuitive narrative for a non-hunter or an animal lover to understand. But, you know, I'd much rather us harvest them and eat them um, than, they, you know, than they die as roadkill or, or any other way. And, and, if, and if a non-hunter, especially a non-hunter animal lover who – you know, doesn't understand how nature works. Let me explain something to you. When an, when an old deer becomes sick or arthritic or infirmed and they can't run away and they can't, you know, use their senses to stay away from uh, coyotes or black bears, they're eaten alive. They're chased down and bit, whether they're bit, en whether they're bitten enough time to disable them or whether they're, you know, suffer a catastrophic bite to the spinal cord, whatever, they're basically chased down um, and eaten alive. A hunter's arrow or a hunter's bullet 
is a much more um, uh, ethical uh, dispatch of an animal that spent its whole life in a free range scenario free no fences they can jump or or go under fences you know it's a free range animal you know if you eat meat and you want to throw shade or you want to criticize hunters you've got a real problem uh, i would ask you to go out west to, to colorado or kansas and go to those feedlots and see that those tens of hundreds of cattle standing in the in an enclosed space and they're going to get killed with a captive bolt gun so please don't criticize my man Joel for for wounding an animal in the pursuit of wanting to harvest an animal because it is something we've been doing for thousands of years it's something I've done and I'll say this right now it's the reason that I shoot tournament archery um if if you're a bow hunter and you're not putting yourself under pressure in practice I think that that's something you should consider doing. You, you should be putting yourself under pressure in practice. And so, Joel, I would tell you, you know, with your, your wife and your kids, you know, just make a bet with one of your kids or your wife. Hand them a dollar and say, I'm going to make this shot. You'll be amazed how that $1 bet puts pressure on the shot. And for people that don't live somewhere where there's an archery tournament circuit or there's an archery tournament on the weekends, get together with your buddies and, you know, everybody practice shooting and then do, you know, five arrows and the best five arrows gets 20 bucks and everybody put $5 in a hat and you win the money. I shoot tournament archery for that very reason. It's the closest thing that I can come to, to the pressure that comes to killing or taking an animal's life. Um, but, but Joel, man, brother, we've all been there. You know, I talked about this. It's happened to all of us and it's, and guess what? It's going to happen again. If, you, if you're a member of this group of people that want to harvest your own meat, every now and then, as rare as we can make it, and I hope that it never happens to me again. The last time it happened to me was 2012. I hope it never happens to me again. But there's a chance that it's going to happen again, no matter how experienced you are. So um, yep. I, I appreciate you you know, coming clean and, to, and telling your story and how it felt. Um, I'm sure there's some new hunters out there that wanted to hear that. Um, yep. What would you tell other other new hunters right now about your journey at this point? Yeah, I'd say it's um, it's been a it's been a fun time, and, and I think that um, you know for me it's um, it's it's just it's a uh, it's learning a new skill, and it's it's filled. I mean, especially it's kind of almost a godsend for me, you know, during this time of. Um, you know, just what all we have going on in the world with this pandemic or other things that have uh, affected our, our lives lately, you know, to be able to go into the woods and spend, you know, 12 hours in a, in a deer stand and or pursuing turkey or just scouting and being a part being out of nature is, is just it's rewarding in itself. I never really thought of it that way. But, you know, ha being on this journey and, and kind of going through this, I mean, it's a blessing to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, I enjoy it. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I've been, I've, I've been blessed, you know, like I said, to, to be able to you know, meet folks like you, Mike, and, and, you know, the folks with the department. And, and just I've got some other connections now that are other hunters that, that I've talked to. And, and 
um, so it, it, it's just been it's been a good time. It is not without its challenges. I mean, th- this is a this is a different sport, and and it's not like going out and playing golf because like you know kind of everybody does that, right? But it's 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 a it's a unique opportunity uh, to to participate in this heritage that. No, this, this is kind of an American thing, you know. I mean, this doesn't happen in, in other countries. And I mean, mm-hmm. outside of North America, that's right. And uh, and so so this is this is special. I mean, we can be a part of conservation as hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that's a piece of it that I never really thought about, but it actually is now important to me. You know, I mean, I see now why as a hunter, I care about the environment a heck of a lot more. And I think about it a lot more than I did before. But, uh, but yeah, I would just say that, you know, don't quit before, before it happens. I mean, you know, like you said, there's a, there's a lot of folks that go out and they try it a couple of times. Like, yeah, that's not for me. But I, I think if you, if you really engage and you, and you use the resources that are available to you, it is possible. It, it can happen. And, and you can become a part of this community and, 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 most importantly, pass it on to someone else. Yeah, brother. Um, once again, uh, I'm always impressed by how articulate you are. I, I think, in my mind, and once again, I'm not blowing sunshine in your direction. I think in five or six years, you're going to be mentoring somebody else because you really get it. Um, you know, it, it's something that is hard to explain um, to somebody who's not done it and not tried it. But when your meat comes on a styrofoam platter wrapped in plastic wrap, you just don't know and you don't understand and you just don't get it. And I'm not being mean to the people that choose to get their meat at the grocery store. I'm just saying you don't understand. You truly don't get where Joel and I are coming from and the rest of the folks that hunt uh, for their meat until you do it yourself. So, uh, What's next, man? Where where are you going to go from here? Yeah, so I've uh, so from a hunting standpoint, you know, I've got I've got some vacation <laughs> scheduled towards the end of uh, October. So it's uh, you know that's the plan. Is I, I've got I've got a couple weeks of, of uh, work. I'm actually uh, heading out of town tomorrow. Uh, going to do a little business down in Florida and uh, fit in a fishing trip. So that's <laughs> that's exciting. I'm looking forward to. to doing a little fishing down there but uh, and some business of course but uh yeah i mean I'm, I'm gonna um you know i'll be back in the woods here in the next few weeks as we get closer to november and uh be, be hunting a lot between the the last week in october and uh, modern gun season so once uh once gun season hits i'll probably uh hopefully i'll have a deer in the freezer by then but uh, i'll take a little higher just while the while everybody else is out in the, in the woods with guns so well, I'm, uh, last year, um, one of my best friends, Tommy Kapuzak and, uh, his daughter, Audrey, um, they came to hunt the farm. Audrey had never killed a buck and, uh, we really, really wanted her to get a buck and, and, uh, she did. She got, she got a gorgeous eight point buck. And, um, this year there, the farm is off limits <laughs> other than my wife and Joel Bryant. So. You, okay. you and my wife are the only people hunting the farm. I, I've hunted the farm. My, I've hunted my own farm uh, this hunting season, and uh, and so far only varmints have been killed. In fact, uh, this past weekend, a uh, a, a a very uh, persistent 
uh, groundhog that's been uh, tearing up some stuff around my barn um, fell prey. But, um, yeah, man, you are, you know where the stands are, you know where the blind, the, the, uh, the uh, blind that uh, is, uh, you know, not a canvas portable blind. I have a, I have yeah. a built, built up blind. You know where the stands and the built up blind are. Um, you know, if you, if you find yourself with a day off and we've talked about this and I'm just saying it on the podcast so that the listeners here, you know, find yourself with a day off and, 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 uh, you, you know, no place to go. Um, or you get to your, um, favorite public land punting, hunting spot first thing in the morning and there's 18 cars, you know, drive down to my farm and, and hunt the afternoon. And, uh, if, if I'm out West, like I'm going to be the next three weeks, um, you know, uh, I, my lovely wife can show you how, how to cut a deer up, man. That girl is a, is a butcher, uh, on the other side of, on the other side of the moon. Um, so, you know, as far as your journey goes and in the context of this podcast, um, trying to help new people, you know, we're, it's the outdoor mentor for a reason, you know, we're trying to, to help and or encourage and personally, I, I can't help everybody, but I'm damn sure happy to help you. Um, do you have any closing thoughts uh, for anybody that might be listening? Yeah, I, I think, again, it's just, uh, you know, encourage uh, those folks. I mean, they're, I think the field of fork now is, is back in back in full swing. I think they're doing some online stuff and, and you know, get in touch. And if you're obviously if you're in Kentucky, there's uh, a lot of resources here to help you get started i mean uh, nobody i felt like initially you know someone that was that was already a hunter probably didn't want me you know want to show me how to do it or whatever but um there are a lot of people i mean there's and there's people like that but uh, there's a lot of people that will will provide assistance and and help and um you know it's no better no better way than than to go to through the department and uh you know, their, their programs and, and so forth, and they'll get you in touch with, with someone. But, uh, but yeah, and, and continue to be, the, the other thing is that, you know, I, I think the, the biggest hurdle to new hunters is, is access. Um, we've got a lot of public land. Um, some of it's used a lot. Some of it's used not so much. So you may have to look around and, and really try to do some research, call the department they've got people that are familiar with these areas and that can tell you, you know, Hey, you need to park here. You need to go here, whatever. And, uh, and so there's resources out there. So I, I just encourage people to do that and, 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 you know, just expand your network a little bit. Yeah, man, right on. And you know, in our last podcast, you talked about, um, your first year, uh, a field, you know, where you were out there not even seeing animals and you, you learned to love, um, just being out there you know what we talked about this a little earlier in this yeah. podcast reference scouting but you know anytime you're a field is valuable you know yeah. you, you're gonna bump into something that you can drop a waypoint on you be like oh look at that you know that's a rub from last year well ladies and gentlemen that's that's valuable drop a waypoint on it and and type in the comment section you know last year's rub um yep. there's always a good uh, or a valuable reason to be out there. And whether it's you just want to see an eastern bluebird, a monarch butterfly, um, you know, you, you you want to be out there um, to actually hunt and, and harvest and, and bring some meat home to your family. So 
you know, my closing thought is, is that I'm just proud of you for getting after it and staying after it. Uh, you know, you've, you've done that. And, um, and like I've said before, you know, one of the things about being a mentor for people that haven't tried it yet, you need to, you need to volunteer with the department or volunteer at your local ride and gun club, volunteer through a conservation organization like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers or Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or the Quality of Your Management Association to mentor someone um, that's not a member of your family or maybe, you know, you've got enough nieces and nephews and, and you know, sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters that you're, you're covered up. Great. But you will enjoy the time afield exponentially more when you're helping a new person and you will find, in my opinion, because this is how I feel, that I'm, I am so excited when whomever I'm helping as a mentee has an opportunity to harvest an animal. In fact, the young lady that helped harvest her first buck last year, uh, we just got it mounted and she's getting it this week. And her dad is over the moon to see his daughter's reaction when she sees her mounted buck. And, and, and I'm over the moon. So, um, folks out there, if, if you want to get started in this game, you, you know, I will, I will say this like I've said it before. If you're at a high school dance and you want to dance, you got to ask somebody to dance. So, if you want to learn to hunt, fish, trap, boat, camp, hike, do anything in the outdoors, ask. Email me, uh, ranger, R-A-N-G-E-R, ranger at theslowhunt.com, all one word, theslowhunt.com. I will try to hook you up. Um, reach out to uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Um, you know, just Google Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife and, and go through and, and, and you'll find whom to, or you'll find a way to, to hook it up. You know, back Kentucky uh, chapter of Backcountry Hunters and, and Anglers. Uh, there's all kinds of resources out there. So um, we, can, we can find a way to help you out. If you, if you email me, uh, I will point you in the right direction. I promise I will. I'm helping as many people as I possibly can personally and if i can't i will point you in the right direction um joel brother i hope to hunt with you again here soon yes absolutely yeah and um uh you know without being a little too sappy uh you're a blessing in my life my friend you're a blessing uh likewise i appreciate it yep um so folks this ends the podcast um you know uh, we probably spent the last we, we spent the first half of the podcast getting here, but we spent the last half talking about what it was like to be at full draw and let an arrow fly on your first buck. And God bless uh, Joel Bryant for, for being as, as open and honest as he can be. And I think that's got to help anybody that wants to start their journey. Um, so uh, this ends the podcast, and I, I really need to um, be uh, – Thankful myself for uh, a musical artist named Grayson Jenkins. Grayson like Grayson County, Jenkins like Jenkins. Uh, that young man uh, has graciously allowed us to use his music as the intro and the end of these podcasts. And uh, if you like if you like what you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast, just uh, go to YouTube and type in Grayson. 
Jenkins and you'll see his music and see his music videos. Um, I also need to thank my friend Walter at uh, Louisville Toppers. Walter's been working on my vehicles for, gosh, 10, 10, 12 years. Uh, And if you hunt and fish as much as I do and you live out of your vehicles in the Rocky Mountains as much as I do, you need somebody like Walter at Louisville Toppers. Uh, There's nothing he can't do with his team to upfit your vehicle, uh, whether whether you need a, a topper, a tonneau cover, uh, running boards, lights, brush guard, whatever. And if you break it, he'll fix it. So, um, go see, uh, Walter at Louisville toppers. They're at uh, 4040 Preston highway in Louisville. And, uh, if you go there, he, he doesn't sponsor us. He doesn't uh, pay me any money to say this, but, uh, he, he and I are old friends and, and, and I think the world of him, uh, Walter will give you a discount if you mention uh, this podcast, The Outdoor Mentor, or my name, Colonel Mike Abel. So there you go. And uh, remember, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. This uh, podcast is a product of the Slow Hunt LLC. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. One, two, three.